Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In the spring of 1994, 60-year-old Kun Saar was trapped. Normally, when he ran into trouble, it was something he could shoot his way out of. But now, as he sat in a cabinet meeting in the Burmese town of Ho Mong, he was discovering just how dangerous politics could be. He was surrounded by the other leaders of the Shan independence movement. They watched him carefully. Despite his position as the newly elected leader of the Shan State National Congress, he knew they didn't trust him. The issue before him was whether or not to allow the Thai and Burmese governments to build an aqueduct through Shan land. If he did, it would reveal him as an opportunist who didn't really care about the Shan. But if he fought the deal, it would antagonize government officials he'd worked with for decades. They would turn against him and go after his business. There was no right choice. He could either anger his fellow Shan militants or face the wrath of both the Burmese and Thai governments. Welcome to Kingpins, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. This is our final episode about Kun Saar. Last week, we followed the drug lord as he rebuilt his empire and how he remade himself as a Shan freedom fighter in Thailand in the 1970s. This week, we'll find out how he managed to turn his difficult situation in his favor. We'll see how he built a political career and became the world's biggest heroin trafficker before pushing his luck too far. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. At the end of January 1982, the 48-year-old Kun Sa lost almost everything. In a matter of days, the empire he'd spent years building had fallen. Since his escape from house arrest in 1976, Kun Saar had risen to become one of the most powerful and infamous drug lords in the world. 
From his base in northern Thailand, he trafficked opium out of Burma, refined it into heroin, and sold it to organized crime outfits across Southeast Asia. Approximately 75% of the world's heroin was coming out of the region, much of it thanks to Khun Sa. And he was able to do it all with the help of the Thai government and Shan State freedom fighters. But in the early 1980s, his luck ran out. At the behest of the United States, his Thai benefactors turned on him. And on January 21, 1982, the Thai military descended upon his headquarters in the town of Ban Hin Tek. Faced with complete annihilation, Khun Sa had no choice but to flee back to Burma, taking the remains of his private army with him. They left behind 15 tons of weaponry and millions of dollars worth of heroin processing equipment. As bad as these hits were, Khun Sa knew that far more damaging was the loss of the Thai government's support. Without their protection, Khun Sa was significantly weaker, and everyone knew it. January 21st proved that his militia was no match for a real military. Embarrassed and betrayed, Khun Sa swore he wouldn't let himself be beaten so easily. He was still the self-proclaimed King of the Golden Triangle and a world-renowned freedom fighter. He would just have to figure out how to rebuild his operation in Burma. The problem with going back to Burma was that he was essentially a fugitive there. But looking at the political landscape, he decided to take the gamble. The Burmese military dictatorship was embroiled in ongoing battles with the Communist Party of Burma and a number of regional separatist groups. Despite his relatively high profile, Khun Sa wouldn't be the government's first priority. A more difficult problem for him would be rebuilding his army. The only way he was going to hold on to his share of the drug market, much less survive in war-torn northeast Burma, was through military strength. Khun Sa and his Shan United Army started going after smaller drug organizations on the Burmese side of the border. With each victory, the losing soldiers defected to Khun Sa. As they swept through the region, they secured key trafficking routes and territory for new heroin refineries. Seeing just how quickly and forcefully Khun Sa was able to rebuild, the Thai authorities realized they'd have to make amends with him. They appreciated that he was keeping the Burmese side of the border under control by taking over all the warring groups. And their financial stakes in the heroin industry also meant they wanted to get back on the drug lord's good side. They just needed to convince Khun Sa that it would be more lucrative for him to forgive and forget their betrayal. Luckily for the Thai officials, Khun Sa's pragmatism won out over his anger. In return for his forgiveness, though, he required that the Thai government recognize him as the sole figurehead of the Shan State independence movement. This would legitimize his role as a freedom fighter on the international stage. However, in the years he'd been in Thailand, other Shan separatist groups with stronger ideological roots had expanded their bases in Burma. In particular, the Shan State Army, with whom Khun Sa had an on-again, off-again relationship, had become a military and political force to be reckoned with. If Khun Sa wanted to even be the nominal leader of the rebel movement, he was going to have to eliminate them. 
In February 1983, Khun Sa's Shan United Army swept into the Ho Mong Valley, where the Shan State Army kept its main base. Its close proximity to Thailand provided an easy escape route in case of an attack from the Burmese government. But for Khun Sa, the valley was also prime real estate for opium trafficking. Khun Sa's troops faced little resistance. The Shan State Army immediately realized they were outmatched and retreated. Khun Sa walked right in and took control of the Ho Mong Valley. In the village of Ho Mong, he established his new headquarters, declaring it the new capital of the future Free Shan State. But he wasn't finished. Khun Sa sent a handful of his most trusted men into northern Thailand and assassinated several Shan independence leaders. By the summer of 1983, he had made himself one of the only viable leaders of the Shan cause and reclaimed his place atop the opium trade. The remaining Shan freedom fighters realized they had no choice but to either join Khun Sa's army or, at the very least, form an alliance with him. Any rebels who objected were killed or forced into exile. Khun Sa's only remaining threat was the Burmese government. In Thailand, he learned the hard way that he couldn't take on a national military. If he didn't want to risk having his operation wiped out again, he was going to have to make a deal. So, at the end of February 1984, Khun Sa reached out to the Burmese military. Back in the 1960s, he'd forged good relationships with a number of commanders. They were pragmatic men who'd seen the value of letting small-time militants get into the opium trade in exchange for their loyalty. On a national scale, not much had changed in the two decades since. Khun Sa was willing to bet they'd consider working together again. On March 7, 1984, a Burmese military commander came up to the Shan state to meet with Khun Sa and his lieutenants. When he left, Khun Sa had the deal of a lifetime. He had free reign to traffic opium and heroin as long as his private army helped the regime go after communist and separatist groups in the area. Khun Sa was now virtually untouchable. As long as he followed the rules, he could operate with impunity. He wanted to celebrate, but this deal called for something bigger than a few bottles of champagne. And he had an idea for something explosive. On March 11, 1984, just a few days after the agreement, one of Khun Sa's men drove a truck up to a large, opulent house in the city of Chiang Mai, Thailand. Trucks often came and went from the mansion because it was the headquarters of the aging Kuomintang general, Li Wenhuan. General Li, if you recall, was the rival who'd allegedly thrown Khun Sa into a hole as punishment back when he was first getting into the drug industry. Khun Sa's man parked the truck, got out, and walked away. Seconds later, the truck exploded, taking the house with it. General Li survived the explosion on a fluke. He was in Bangkok at the time. But the message was clear. Khun Sa was in charge now. The young upstart, now 50 years old, had finally repaid the old general for the humiliations of his youth. To add insult to injury, after the attack, Li's soldiers abandoned their general 
for Khun Sa's Shan United Army. But the exhilarating feeling of being invincible would be short-lived. The Burmese government was under pressure from the DEA to do something about the country's narcotics problem. And if the military dictatorship was forced to decide between a drug lord and the support of the United States, there was no question that Khun Sa would lose out. Coming up, Khun Sa plays politics. Hi everyone, it's Alastair, and I have some very exciting news to share. I'm hosting a new podcast original series that exposes the dark, disturbing, and deadly side of medicine. It's called Medical Murders, and I think you're really going to like it. Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Join me as I examine the formative years and motives of history's most infamous killers, dissecting their medical backgrounds with expert analysis and professional insight provided by practicing MD, Dr. David Kipper. On Medical Murders, we'll investigate a wide range of heinous healthcare workers, like the general practitioner believed to be the most prolific serial killer in modern history or the dentist who led a double life as a hitman, or even the doctor and gang member who mixed deadly potions for unhappy housewives to use on their husbands. When it comes to these true crime stories, the only thing the doctor ordered is murder. Follow my new series, Medical Murders, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. In the spring of 1984, 50-year-old Khun Sa was on top of the world. In the two years since he'd been forced to flee his headquarters in Thailand, he had rebuilt his opium empire in the impregnable hill town of Ho Mong in Burma's Shan state. As he built up his army and expanded his drug operation, He'd made unofficial deals with both the Thai and Burmese authorities before striking a final blow at his oldest rival, General Lee. But unbeknownst to Khun Sa, the Burmese military dictatorship was under serious pressure from the United States to do something about their narcotics problem. The Burmese government had little interest in actually stopping the opium trade. They were far more concerned with getting rid of communist and ethnic minority insurgent groups like the Shan. But the military dictatorship's increasingly dismal human rights record left them with few international friends. The leaders needed to at least pay lip service to the international war on drugs. Khun Sa was still the most visible of the Golden Triangle's kingpins. Now, the Burmese government saw an opportunity to exploit his infamy to their advantage and score a point with the Americans. In late May 1984, an international summit was held in Tangi, the capital of the Shan state. During the summit, a Burmese military officer made a shocking announcement. His forces had just destroyed Khun Sa's headquarters in Homang. He claimed they had struck a death blow to the powerful narcos operation and, by extension, the entire heroin industry. 
It was the perfect PR to win over hesitant foreign dignitaries. But it didn't take long for the truth to come out. In fact, the operation in question was a strike against insurgent groups elsewhere in the region. Homong hadn't been touched, and neither had Kunsa's heroin refineries. All the same, when word reached Kunsa that he was being used as a scapegoat, he realized that his position was precarious. At any point, the Burmese government could turn on him when he outlived his usefulness. Sooner or later, it seemed inevitable that the DEA's pressure would work. The only way Kun Sa could protect himself was to become even more powerful. And so, he reached out to the recently formed Thai Revolutionary Council, or TRC. The TRC was a unified Shan separatist group founded by the surviving leaders of the organizations Kun Sa had demolished. Now, however, Kun Sa wanted to propose a merger. He already knew the TRC didn't approve of the drug trade, so he made the case that he was first and foremost a true believer in the cause of Shan independence. He argued that he only used drugs to fund the fight against the Burmese government. If the two groups combined their armies, they would be unstoppable. The leaders of the TRC were skeptical. But Kun Sa had always been a charmer. He told them he had no interest in being the leader of the new consolidated organization. He just cared about the cause. After being at war with Burma for decades, the veteran freedom fighters agreed to take a chance on him. And so, in the spring of 1985, Kun Sa's Shan United Army became the Muang Thai Army, the official military arm of the Thai Revolutionary Council. Kun Sa finally had his credentials as a true Shan separatist. Using the legitimacy of the Shan cause, Kun Sa was able to recruit even more followers into his army. He could offer money, food, and shelter, prospects that were hard to come by in the unstable region. But if he ever felt he was short on numbers, he simply took men and boys from local villages and forced them to become soldiers, Many weren't even Sean. If they ran away, their families would be killed. And as an added bonus of this forced recruitment, Kun Sa gained exclusive access to more poppy farms. As his profits swelled, he built even more heroin refineries along the Burmese-Thai border. As long as he wasn't actually producing drugs on Thai soil, the Thai authorities were more than happy to let him traffic through their country. For a cut, of course. Just to be safe, he made the same contributions to Burmese officials, too. He figured financial ties would make them more invested in his continued success. Over the next few years, Kun Sa's opium operation skyrocketed. By 1987, he was producing approximately 80% of the heroin coming out of the Golden Triangle, bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars a year. By 1990, he had gone from moving 500 tons of opium per year to 2,500 tons. His heroin was considered among the purest in the world, and both supply and demand took off around the globe. As Burmese heroin poured into the United States, the U.S. government ramped up its rhetoric against Kun Sa, calling him a monster and an enemy of the world. 
the US leaned even more heavily on the Burmese government to go after the kingpin. But the Burmese regime had become dependent on Khunsa's money. So they merely staged attacks against him. In early 1987, government forces fired off rockets near Homang. When they returned to the capital, they reported to the U.S. ambassador that they had struck a real blow at the kingpin's operation. The local DEA office backed up the government, claiming the military had done its best. Years later, the U.S. learned that the office had been infiltrated by men loyal to the regime, dedicated to hiding the truth from Washington. Everyone else, it seemed, knew the truth, and they didn't care. Foreign dignitaries, journalists, and even celebrities flocked to Homang at Kunsa's invitation. He had transformed the rural village into a vibrant, wealthy town and rolled out the red carpet for his visitors. In his respectable role as a freedom fighter, he urged his guests to spread the word about the Shan cause. They could see for themselves how the Shan people deserve their own country, free from Burma's oppression. Once they achieved their goal, he would be relieved to finally stop trafficking heroin. He declined to mention that, like most independence movements in Burma, the Shan cause had achieved no measurable success since its inception. Despite his plans, forces beyond Kunsa's control changed the game in the late 1980s. For the past few years, the Burmese economy had been floundering. And in the autumn of 1987, the government unexpectedly demonetized much of its currency, rendering three quarters of the country's money worthless. This was the straw that broke the camel's back. By early 1988, student protests in the capital had turned into huge demonstrations against the government in favor of democracy. The regime responded with violence, sending armed forces to crack down on the protesters. By August, there were demonstrations in every city in the country, and thousands had been killed and arrested. Burma was in the midst of full-blown rebellion. Most of the country's separatist groups seized the opportunity to try to gain more territory. Kunsa, however, was worried about what would happen if the regime fell. He depended on the corrupt officials to protect him from the DEA. If the dictatorship lost power, so would he. But there was one silver lining. As the state's human rights abuses stacked up, Burma was increasingly diplomatically isolated. With international trade drying up, opium once again became the only steady industry. Kunsa's business was doing better than ever. But his house of cards was also more precarious than it had ever been. His high profile as both a drug lord and Sean separatist made him an easy target for a government desperately in need of a victory. As Kun Sa's negotiating position deteriorated, his luck would soon run out for the last time. Coming up, Kun Sa makes one last deal. Now back to the story. By the end of the 1980s, 56-year-old Kun Sa was feeling confident in his position atop the global heroin trade. Even as Burma descended into chaos, Kun Sa's business was thriving. 
By 1990, Kunsa had confidently returned to hosting journalists and dignitaries from around the globe at his headquarters. He pleaded for the cause of the Shan people, boasted about his lucrative heroin operation, and bragged about his supposed 15,000-man army. He even did an outrageous interview for ABC's 2020 in which he challenged U.S. President George H.W. Bush to pay him $48 million per year to burn all the opium he'd otherwise traffic. Just as the Americans had rejected his similar offer more than a decade earlier, they rejected this one too. In March 1990, a federal grand jury in New York indicted Kunsa on drug trafficking charges. There was little chance he'd be extradited, but the charges were meant to force the Burmese government to crack down on heroin the way they'd crack down on political dissent. In its typical style, the regime opted for a PR stunt, staging the public destruction of some supposed heroin refineries. But the Americans weren't falling for it this time. Frustrated, Burma decided it had had enough of trying to impress the Americans. They needed foreign partners who weren't quite so obsessed with drugs and human rights. So in 1988, they struck an arms deal with China. The alliance ended decades of fraught relations between the two countries. And to pay for the new Chinese weapons, the Burmese regime decided to legalize the country's thriving black markets, allowing drug money to pour into the banks. This had the added benefit of making the separatist leaders who were also drug lords feel less hostile towards the regime. Recognizing the opportunity, the government reached out to a number of the rebel groups, offering a ceasefire. The only group they didn't reach out to was Khun Sa and his fellow Shan separatists. The Burmese regime knew the U.S. wouldn't leave them alone until Khun Sa had been brought down. So they decided to kill two birds with one stone. In their ceasefire negotiations, they offered other rebel groups the opportunity to expand their heroin operations if they helped take down Khun Sa. One group after another took the government's deal. In his younger days, Khun Sa might have gone into hiding, moving around the rugged countryside to stay one step ahead of his enemies. But now, he felt too confident to run. His business was still booming. His well-equipped army now allegedly numbered nearly 20,000 soldiers, and he still preached about Shan independence to international visitors. And much of the Shan state was under the control of the Thai Revolutionary Council. Any outside attackers would be destroyed. Besides, Khun Sa was mostly focused on his growing role in the independence movement. The TRC had formed a sort of parliament-in-waiting known as the Shan State National Congress. And in December 1993, Khun Sa was elected its chairman. He was now the official leader of the Shan independence movement. In a rousing speech, he swore to the Shan people that he would rather die than give up on the cause. Under his leadership, the Congress released a series of demands to the UN, including that Burma withdraw from Shan soil. But in early 1994, this notion of Shan sovereignty was put to the test. Thailand needed water, and the Burmese government, in a bid to improve relations with its next-door neighbor, offered to help. 
The two countries agreed on a dam project that would divert water to Thailand from northeast Burma. The river in question was predominantly in Shan territory, as the Shan leader, Khun Sa, had to intervene or risk losing his position. So, in his typical dramatic style, he pronounced that the river belonged to the Shan people, and Burma could not make a deal on their behalf. If the project went forward, he would use his army to stop it. The Thai government was furious at Khun Sa's intransigence. They decided they were done with the drug lord, for good this time. Thai forces closed the road to Ho Mong from their side of the border, effectively cutting off Khun Sa's primary trafficking route. Without a road out of Burma, he couldn't distribute his product. Around the same time, the Burmese military completed their ceasefire agreements with nearly all of the other separatist groups in the country. Finally united, they focused on the biggest fish of all, Khun Sa. In the spring of 1994, the Burmese army launched its first proper offensive against the drug lord. The goal was to cut off his transport routes around Burma and to force his troops back towards the border. It was slow going, as Khun Sa's well-equipped army held strong positions. During the battle in June, 546 Burmese troops were killed. But Burma could afford to be patient. For all Khun Sa's bluster, the government was cutting off the arms of his business one by one. As his avenues out of the Ho Mong Valley closed, other drug lords rushed in to claim those regions. And with the Thai border shut down, Khun Sa's back was against the wall. It was only a matter of time before the Shan independence movement realized that their association with Khun Sa was hurting them. In July 1995, after another major offensive by the Burmese military, a prominent Shan freedom fighter publicly turned against Khun Sa. He accused the kingpin of exploiting the cause to fund his drug business. A month later, in August 1995, the 61-year-old Khun Sa was forced out of the Shan State National Congress and removed as head of the Muang Thai Army. In the midst of the controversy, the Burmese government negotiated a ceasefire with the Shan leaders in exchange for breaking ties with Khun Sa. Khun Sa considered his next move, and much to his surprise, the best option was not going on the offensive. The government was keen to get a PR win out of his defeat, but they didn't much care how it happened. He realized he could make a deal that would give everyone what they wanted. On January 1st, 1996, 1,500 Burmese soldiers marched into Ho Mong and found Khun Sa and 5,000 of his men awaiting them. Their guns were at their feet. Burma's most infamous fugitive surrendered without a single shot. Two weeks later, another supposed surrender happened, this one filmed by the state TV network. Khun Sa gave a speech to the nation about his desire to end the opium trade and the need for the people of Burma to work together under the leadership of the national government. After his stage-managed surrender, the Burmese government installed Khun Sa in luxurious mansions in the capital and along the scenic Inli Lake. From there, he could continue running his drug businesses 
though he was expected to invest his money back into the legitimate economy. But Kunsa's biggest win was that the government would not extradite him to the U.S. for prosecution. As for the regime, Kunsa's surrender killed any international attention for the Shan independence movement, which has continued to struggle ever since. Kunsa spent the next 11 years living a life of comfort and luxury. When he died in 2007 at the age of 73, it was of natural causes, an ending even he likely never saw coming after his nearly 60 years as a militant. But his quiet death mirrored the trajectory of the opium and heroin trade in the region. Taking Kun Sa out of the equation made very little difference in the amount of narcotics coming out of the Golden Triangle. It seems he may have been less powerful than he was given credit for. However, a variety of other factors led to the decline of the opium trade in the region. By the time of Kunsa's death in 2007, the Golden Triangle was only producing 5% of the world's heroin supply. Perhaps its quiet petering out was inevitable, and the master dealmaker managed to leave the game at exactly the right time. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Kingpins for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Kingpins was written by Kate Thorman, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Alastair Merton. Killer nurses. Deranged doctors. Mad scientists. Don't forget to subscribe to my new podcast original series, Medical Murders. Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead used their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. I'm so proud of this show and can't wait for you to check it out. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>